So last week, um, John talked about thankfulness and contentment. And so this, and, and what were some, did anyone have like some key takeaways from the idea of thankfulness and contentment? Just reflecting back on last week's uh, lesson on contentment, thankfulness and contentment. So Kelly brought up just continuing to think about the question that John opened with is, could my life be better? Um, and, and how our answer to that you know, speaks to what's in our heart. Actually, we were talking about that. So, and I was like, I feel like everyone's life could be better on paper, mm-hmm. always. But then the contentment is being like, you're fine that it's not better. You know, like you're fine where you are because God put you there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, your life could be better, like objectively better, you know, but right. You, but, but like, would you change it? Right. Kind of question. And actually, but the better was more. The better is it, if this is God's best for me. It's just not what I feel necessarily is right. best, which is what contentment is. Is God thinks this is what's best for His glory and my good and the good of my family and the good of people around me, mm-hmm. and I have to be okay with that. Though we all want the, we all want to be in the top two percent, and we all want to, but that's not, that's not God's mm-hmm. best and what is better. And so being okay, not just being okay with it, like you said about, you know, we can say, yeah, I'm content, but we're just white knuckling it through. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of my default often, mm-hmm. not able to acknowledge the hard things and the good things in God's providence and God's goodness in it, but my heart really not resting in that, but really just wiping it. Yeah. Yeah, and <clears throat> so if and I think the other thing that John emphasized was, and you, you just mentioned, is that it's not just a bare stoicism either. It's not. It's neither white knuckling it or just acting like you know, kind of Zen, I have no feelings, I'm just, I just go with the flow of things. Um, Well, today we're going to talk about thankfulness and wonder. And I think the two tie in really beautifully because, and and this can be, this could sound really uh, cruel to someone who is, who is struggling with contentment. It's like, not only do we want you to be content, but we want you to be amazing. And it's not like that, <clears throat> but it's sort of like that because <clears throat> we, what we want to think about today is not just, not just that we should be content or rather to, to better round out what contentment means is to see the wonder <clears throat> in all that's around us. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> we want to see the wonder that's, that's all around us. And the more we find wonder in all that God's given us in the circumstances. So, there's, so we go from, there's a, maybe a progression. Uh, we, we realize this is best for me. 
And then the more we sit in that, the more we're, we're thankful to God for that, we start to see the wonder of God's plan for how what is best for me truly is. And then that leads us to more gratitude, right? Because we see, we see how amazingly God orchestrates every single little thing in our lives. Yes, some of those things are painful and we should, we should recognize that. Yes, some of those things are amazingly joyous and we should celebrate that. But through it all, there's a wonder that comes in seeing that God's hand is carefully working every single circumstance for our good and his glory. So our author opens, <clears throat> our author opens uh, uh, the book, I believe it's almost opening the book at least, uh, by saying, consistently looking for opportunities to express gratefulness enlarges your capacity to see wonder, an especially valuable reward. So <clears throat> have, any of you, have any of you known someone who, um, who just seems amazed by everything. Like they're, they're like, wow, that is so cool. Or you give them something, and they're like, that is, thank you, I've never seen that. Or I, I think about my, my niece, uh, uh, if you, you would, she went through this stage where you'd give her anything, and she would go, thank you so much. <laughs> she would just... She was just so sincere, but one time she thought I was giving her my chocolate milk, and she started saying thank you. I was like, no, 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 sorry. That is still mine. Um, But honestly, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of, I feel very insecure around those people. And I find, I find, uh, just to be honest, I find those people rather tiring to be around because it's just a lot. They're, everything to them is huge and big, and I just feel very dull. And, and uh, there's maybe like a tendency to want to just move on with my dull life without like having to interact with, is this more amazing than I was thinking? I don't know, but just calm down and let me keep staying in my lane. Um, and, and I think sometimes kids are, I think we, we see some of that, some of that easily impressed with kids. And that's why, you know, you can, you can take a kid's nose, you know, take their nose and go, oh, I've got your nose. And they're like, oh, what? Mm-hmm. And then you can put the nose back and they're like, oh, I love that my nose is back. And they're just, it's, it's fun because they're gullible and they're, they're easily impressed. But they, they, have, they have a little bit more of a sense of wonder and marvel about the world because everything's so new. But then we get older and more mature and we think, Yes, those are the childish ways. And, and now I, I recognize that the world is hard. I went to the school of hard knocks, and, uh, and, and life's not all that, all that you know, amazing like I thought as a kid. Well, G.K. Chesterton touches on this in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. I'm going to read that again. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. 
It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has, eternal, he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. There's so much in there. Now, self-admittedly, he's speculating. He's, you, know, you can't push him too far on this. He's, we don't know if he's actually saying that each, he handcrafts each daisy. Um, but his point stands that we, that last statement, for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. There's so much truth uh, in that idea. So this is, this is the reason why you, you get your dream job and after X period of time, suddenly you're bored again. The, the job that you dreamed about having for years, you prepared for, you imagined this would solve my problems, and you get into the job, everything's great until suddenly you realize, man, I'm done. I want something else. Or it's the same reason why spouses will, uh, will, will come home each day and think, man, same person right there. And they'll go look for something new and adventurous. Rather than, rather than thinking, in the case of the dream job, oh my word, I get to go to work again, and this is the job I prayed for for so long. Or every time you come home, oh my word, she is still here? <laughs> she, she didn't leave? I get, to, I get to come home to the same amazingness every single night? That's, that's amazing. This is, yes, it's, it's monotonous. On one way you could say it's monotonous. But isn't there opportunity to exalt in that monotony? That we get the same amazing things every day. We get the same sunshine. We get the same stars in the sky. We get the same autumn every, every fall, even if some of us kind of have a hard time with it. Um, it's great. The monotony of how God has set up the week every Sunday. Every Monday, we get to start the work week. Every Wednesday, we get to get together and, and, and fellowship and pray. And every, every uh, you know, and then again, we repeat that whole cycle. So, so George, uh, sorry, just really quickly to think about this. Uh, thankfulness, and this is sort of combining some of the thoughts that he writes in the book, but thankfulness brings the world into technicolor. And we see how amazing things really are. The more we can exalt in the mundane, the more we see how beautiful the world is that God's created, and, uh, and the more we have cause to be thankful. And it's not just in the created world, it's also in his providence in our lives. Of, of Again, going back to, he works what is best for us. And we move from the idea of contentment in that to wonder at his, at his handiwork. So, everyone seen It's a Wonderful Life? I knew Florin wasn't going to be the one to see it. I knew it. <laughs> um, so, so, George Bailey, he starts out pretty well, but then he, uh, you know, life seems to keep passing poor George by. He's home, and, uh, and he's got these big dreams to go and, and travel the world. And uh, then his father dies, and he, and he is, it grounds him at home again, and he works in his father's business because otherwise 
old potter is going to ruin the town. See? Okay. So <clears throat> life goes on. It kind of continues to, continues to grind. But then he gets married and things are great again. But then the grind continues. And, and finally, there's that, there's that scene where, uh, where Clarence, the angel, we're not going to get into the theology of its wonderful life. Just bear with me. Clarence feigns that he's going to uh, kill himself. And so George goes and, and rescues him. And finally, through a series of events, uh, uh, Clarence gives him a view into what life would be like if, if George weren't alive. Now, we're not going to go the route of, of the, you could say, well, that's very self-exaltant, like, you know, the world would be just fine without George. Um, but actually, the wonder of it is, it wouldn't be. God created us, and we do matter exactly where we are. I think we would maybe value our relationships more if we realized that God put us there because we do matter. There would be a vacuum without you. There would be um, a, a void that messed things up because you were part of God's perfect plan for that place, for that time. So <clears throat> George goes through this life. It's terrible finding, sees, sees what it would be like. It's terrible. He just, no one knows him. He sees Mary in the street and she's, she's, she's in a bad way and, and it, he, he can't help her. Um, and so finally he's, he just breaks down and he's on the bridge and there's this amazing, uh, transition scene. Suddenly his friend, the cop comes up, Bert, and, uh, and he's, he's talking to him and he's like, and he suddenly he realizes that Bert recognizes him. So, so he must be out of this crazy dream. And Bert notices that he's bleeding on his, on his lip because he'd just gotten into a bar fight. And so he's, he's kind of, he's bleeding on his, on his lip. And Bert goes, hey, you, you okay? You're, you're bleeding. And he goes, I'm bleeding. I'm bleeding. <laughs> he's just so excited because, because life, even with a bloody lip, is a whole lot better than the, 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 the life that he thought he wanted, which was basically to never have been born. So in order to see these things, though, the book emphasizes alertness. We have to be awake in order to see. Um, we, have to, we have to be watchful. And so uh, Colossians 4 verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we should be on the lookout. Thomas talked about this with, um, with, with making, building the fence and, and thinking about the drill, and just chasing that down a bunny rabbit trail that maybe only Thomas could. But you have your own bunny rabbit trails that you can go down. Um, we should be watchful in our Thanksgiving. If, and I'm guilty of this. You know, I start sweating bullets when you go to someone's house where their family tradition is to go around and say what you're thankful for at Thanksgiving. It's like, oh boy. <laughs> Why do we have to do this? Um, and you try to figure out, you know, you try to figure out something, and then anyhow. So it's, it's I always sweat bullets. So I'm not, I'm not alone in this. But that's, that's probably not right. You should have what you're thankful for on the tip of, me, on the tip of your tongue. I should have what I'm thankful for on the tip of my tongue, because we should be watchful in it. We should be every time we go in prayer, we should be thanking God for something, because 
there is a lot in this world to be thankful for. Um, another example of this idea of watching and seeing um, is <clears throat> Psalm 34, verse 8, just the first section. Some of you know it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Exactly. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's sort of this, um, I, think, I think John Piper is the one that talked about, uh, uh, I think he calls it Christian hedonism. Um, and there have been critiques of that and yada yada, but just embrace it for a moment. There's sort of this, there's sort of this good and right, there's this good and right, you know, encouragement to, to, to not be stoic, to not be uh, acting as though you're only, you're only spirit and nothing physical, but taste and see that the Lord is good. Think about all that he's done in your life. Embrace it. Hold on to it. But again, it requires action. See that the Lord is good. You have to be alert. Um, the, 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 I have not read Fahrenheit 451, but there's a quote in our book on it. And, and the quote is, stuff your eyes with wonder. Drive down the road, stuff your eyes with wonder. But we can stuff our spiritual eyes with wonder. It's not just the physical world. We can stuff our eyes with spiritual wonder as we think about the people that God has put in our lives the ways that he has led us to where we are, the ways that he has shown his love for us despite our lack of faithfulness. Um, If you want, and we're going to talk more about this later, but if you want fodder for thankfulness and wonder, think about contrasts. Steadfast love is part of God's character. Steadfast love is not my character. Mercy is part of God's character. Mercy is not part of my character. Long-suffering is part of God's character. Long-suffering is not part of my character. The more you think about those contrasts, the more you realize how wonderful God is and how, and how much you have to be thankful for. So <clears throat> what are some examples, though, in Scripture? Um, I mean, to see in Scripture is a big deal, the idea of seeing. So just think with me for a moment about Examples where seeing is a big deal in Scripture. When the apostles saw Jesus after he was risen from the dead. Okay, yes. And the, they saw the scars on his hands. Yep. What are other examples? Um, what was it? Um, Joshua, when the angel let him see the, <clears throat> the army of the Lord around him that knows, I mean, flesh and blood didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's actually with Elisha. Elisha. Yep. And, and it, I'm actually, I'm actually going to read that later. So yeah, that's a great example. What else? What else? So some that I wanted to focus on were Jesus healing the man born blind. Jesus healing Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus comes uh, and he says, uh, he's crying for help, and Jesus calls him to himself, and, and his request is, let me see again, or restore my sight. He wants to see. Uh, Jesus healing the blind man by spitting in his eyes. Um, God opening the eyes of Balaam uh, as he's on the way, uh, and, he, and he opens his eyes to see that there's an angel blocking his, blocking his way. 
um, scales falling from Paul's eyes, right? At, at, the con- at his conversion, he's blind for a while, and then scales fall out of his eyes. There's a, there's a lot around seeing, but what's a thread that you see all throughout? What's, what's kind of being pictured in all of those examples about seeing? It may be except for Balaam. <laughs> Anyone? Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a picture of salvation, really. It's God opening our eyes. It's healing us from our natural blindness. And so what, uh, what Crabtree speaks of in the book is that in order to be alert, we have to be alive. We have to be awakened. This isn't just, just like John talked about last week with contentment, this isn't just a, a thing that we can train in ourselves. We have to be alive. We have to be, um, there's, a, there's the old phrase, quickened um, by the Holy Spirit so that we can, we can truly see. Um, the, in, in the passage on the man born blind, when brought, dragged before the, the Pharisees, uh, it's, it's amazing to see this man's boldness increase uh, because the Pharisees are examining him and at first he's saying like, just telling them, this, telling them what happened. And then it keeps going on and finally they say, well, we know this man is a sinner. And his response is, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's, that's a picture of salvation there. <clears throat> so that's helpful for us to, to remember, just as, a, as an aside, that when we see others around us, unbelievers who don't have gratitude, um, there's a temptation to be like frustrated with them or, or act as though, you know, like ugh, just kind of write them off in some way with impatience. Like, oh my word, you're just so ingrateful or you're so entitled or... Name, name the symptom of ingratitude. Well, it really should drive us to have compassion because their eyes have not been opened. They can't see and wonder at that, that which is around them. And they, they can't be truly thankful because their eyes have not been opened. Um, Proverbs 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. We should have a a cheerful heart, and therefore a continual feast. And we should long for unbelievers around us to share in that continual feast because all the days of the evil uh, are afflicted. Um, <clears throat> so then the book goes on to ask, what is marvelous? What, what, is, what, is, what is this that we're supposed to be looking for? Um, and he gives a good summary uh, at one point when he says, basically, that which is worthy of marvel, we can tell if something is worthy of marvel if it images forth the perfections of God himself. So, not everything is equally marvelous. Uh, and he brings up C.S. Lewis's analogy of, of children playing with mud pies in Weight of Glory. Has anyone read that? I'm sure you have. Um, anyone else read that? It's... Um, it's, it's this, uh, well, I'll just read the, I'll read the section. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Um, so, yes, we should, be, we should marvel at, at the world around us. But not everything is equally worthy of marvel. But I think, I think it's really our heart that determines if something is marvelous or not. Because the child who doesn't have an opportunity to go to the sea could marvel at the mud pies that they're making. And that would be totally legitimate. Um, <clears throat> but it's our heart. And I think a great contrast is to see, is to, to consider a character in, in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar. So if you remember Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking along the rooftop, which seems to be a very dangerous thing for monarchs in the ancient Near East. Uh, David with Bathsheba, Nebuchadnezzar with madness. Uh, and he's walking along the rooftop of his palace, and he looks out on, on the great city of Babylon, and he says, and he marvels, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's, he's marveling pretty hard right now. <laughs> he's, he's pretty enamored with number one, right? Um, but what he's marveling at, I think, goes back to C.S. Lewis. He's too easily pleased. What he's marveling at is tawdry, puny, and, uh, and, and t- just tiny. His own greatness. He's dead. And his greatness is gone. And that's what he was occupying his time marveling in. That's mud pies. That's mud pies in a slum. What could he have been marveling at, though? It's not wrong. Like, he could go up on his rooftop safely by marveling at other things as he looked around. What would be some things that he could legitimately marvel over? Creation. Creation. He could look around and see maybe it was sunset and marvel at the sunset. What else? He could marvel that God allowed him to build this great thing. But yeah. In the midst of, you know, it's this little speck on the map, right? In the midst of God's greatness that God would allow him to, you know, express his image bearing yeah. Absolutely. Right. But it's totally legitimate to marvel in the image of God working out in the creativity. Like we can marvel at a symphony legitimately, not because it emphasizes man, but because how, how amazing is it that God has given that gift to, to mankind? What else could he marvel in? That he's walking. That he's walking. Him breathing. <laughs> that God chose to put him over that great city. That could be, that could be worth marveling over. Uh, that here, here there's this magnificent nation, this, this beautiful city, and God was pleased to put him there. So not everything is worth marveling over. Um, <clears throat> but Psalm 8, and, and I don't think we're going to have time to give it full justice, so I'd encourage you to read Psalm 8 and, and, and meditate on it. But Psalm 8 is a beautiful example of marveling at, at God 
and what he's done. And a great contrast here is that David was truly a mighty king. He, uh, militarily speaking, he got things done. (laughs) Um, But he's marveling in Psalm 8, not in his own majesty, but in God's majesty on display in his character and his works. So it starts, O Lord, our Lord. Calvin says of that opening phrase, because it is impossible to, in words to express truly the works of God, he begins with an exclamation, oh, thus acknowledging he is unequal to the task of recounting God's incomprehensible goodness. That's beautiful. So the phrase is, though, so, oh, Yahweh, our Adon, and I probably did not pronounce this correctly, but he uses two different two different words. One is the name of God, Yahweh, so O Yahweh, our Lord, um, and then says our Lord, which is the word for master, or it could be used and is actually frequently used of of human masters as well. Uh, And one one pastor, uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, draws out from that 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 this, this combination of a name with a title is a way of expressing intimacy with reverence and awe at the same time. Uh, and the, the analogy he uses is how a, spi- a spouse, a spice, a spouse <laughs> may say to, to the other, um, oh, you know, oh, I don't know, Florin could say to Leslie, oh, Leslie, my wife. There's the combination of the intimacy of knowing the name and, and the title that, that she bears, and especially in, in how that connects. Um, <clears throat> so, so David is marveling here at, at God's character by using his, his personal name and also showing reverence and awe and submitting to him as Lord. So then he goes on, How majestic is your name in all the earth? You have set your glory above the heavens. So God's name is not merely majestic to us. Um, It's majestic in all the earth. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we can't escape God's majesty. There's nowhere we can go. I think of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And it goes on to talking about these different extremes to where he could go, and God is still there. So his presence is everywhere, but his majesty is unavoidably known as well because we're, we're always surrounded by it. Um, <clears throat> again, Calvin writes, David says his glory is set above the heavens because the earth is too small to contain the wonderful manifestations of the character and perfections of God. So his majesty is known in the earth, but it's not contained by the earth. It can't be contained. And so it, it says he's, he's set above the heavens. And then it goes on to this strange part. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So this part can be a bit confusing. Um, and, and a lot of, it's a legitimate question to ask, what does he mean? Like in what sense? Are babies uh, 
stilling the enemy and the avenger uh, or, or establishing strength. And there are a lot of different ways you could go with this, and it's hard to know exactly what's being said, but there are, there are a few things that are certain. One thing that's certain is that God uses the weakness of babies to confound the wicked. And here again, the contrast between David and Nebuchadnezzar. David is, is attempting to show God's, God's majesty by first looking at man in his weakest state. Babies are impressive, but not because of anything they're doing actively. What's impressive about babies is how God is sustaining them amidst everything else. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're not impressive on their own. And David's pointing to these babies as tools in God's hands to, uh, to still the avenger. Um, <laughs> the the moxie in Calvin's commentary is, is outstanding. David takes on the monsters who seek to overthrow all piety and fear of God and even to do violence to heaven itself and in mockery brings into the field of battle against them the mouths of babes, which he says have sufficient strength to lay their intolerable pride in the dust. It's pretty devastating. I love that. Um, <clears throat> There's strength in weakness. And there's also a sense in which, uh, and, and again, Dr. Van Dixhorn draws this out, that the very existence of babies defies Satan. Because ever since the fall, Satan has sought to, to snuff out humanity. And yet, with each baby born, it's a signal to him of, you've not won yet. You've not won. You've not won. Oh, that's another one out. You've not won. It's not a sign of victory, totally. Otherwise, it would just be, if, if, if it were only about the existence of babies, it would be a war of attrition, and we would eventually fade off. But really, the signal is, here's another one, evidencing God's preservation. God is on our side. God is on the side of humanity. And every baby born is a new reminder that you're not going to win because God is continuing to preserve us. So Jesus later quotes this passage in Matthew 21 when uh, he's healing. uh, uh, He's just cleansed the temple. He's healing. And the the chief priests and Pharisees come and complain to him because children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And and they say to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So here again, we see how Jesus is applying this. These children, recognizing who Jesus is, is confounding the wickedness of the unbelieving chief priests and scribes. Um, uh, Then we we move on. When I look at or consider, that could be translated consider, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, So David is taking time to actually look and consider. And we see that that same idea when uh, Jesus says, consider the ravens or consider the lilies. I think we should ask ourselves, do we consider? Do we stop and, and just look at what God has done? 
It's also actually the same root word that's used, and it's, it's a common word, so I don't want to press this too much, but it's the same root word that's used in the creation account when God saw that it was good. And he created the next thing and saw that it was good. And this goes on and on. So we should ask ourselves, do we, if God looked at his creation and saw that it was good, do we look at God's creation and recognize it for what it is and wonder and marvel at it? Then he goes on, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Um, David turns from considering the heavens, which are majestic, to man. And in your own meditation, just think through what is man. We're rebellious. We fight against God. And yet God is still mindful of us. He cares for us. Um, You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, it's hard for us sometimes, just to jump ahead a little bit, it's hard for us to, to think sometimes, in what way has man been crowned with glory and honor? If you, if you open up the news, uh, hopefully not today, um, but if you open up the news and look around, uh, it's hard to see any sort of glory or honor in man. There's, there's a lot of dishonor. There's a lot of carping and, and uh, wickedness. Um, And yet, he goes on, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. But we, we don't look very much in control. But the beautiful thing here is that this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. The, create, the, the dominion mandate is, is really fulfilled in Jesus, because there is a man, truly a man, who was born as a baby, a weak baby, um, but that baby would grow to be a boy who would astonish those in the temple as they heard his answers. And he would grow to be a man who would heal the sick and open the eyes of the blind. And he would grow to be the same man who stilled a storm with a word. So Jesus is the the true man with dominion over all all the earth. He, he truly has dominion um, uh, over sheep and oxen and beasts. <clears throat> and it's in Jesus that, we have, that we've been truly crowned with honor because God cared for us. And then it closes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We're sandwiched between these two declarations of praise, these two Uh, meditations of marvel. So, in conclusion, um, much like John was saying last week about contentment, it's a gift from God. And so, if we see the world around us and we marvel, then we should give God thanks that God has opened our eyes. But if we struggle, we should pray that God would, uh, that God would open our eyes to see all that he's, all that he's done. We can pray with confidence trusting that God will, will um, help us to wonder because it's, it's what we're made to do in light of all that he's done. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. I'm so sorry that there's not time for questions or comments, but hopefully you'll, you'll talk to each other at coffee hour. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for how much there is to marvel at. And Lord, we confess that we are, 
we are easily pleased, we marvel at the wrong things, and we uh, are in desensitized to the very things that we should uh, stand in awe uh, at. And we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, who alone can uh, continue to open our eyes. And we thank you that our eyes have been opened savingly, uh, but we pray that we would continue to open our eyes more and more to see, uh, to see your fingers at work in all throughout our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.